Welcome to episode 50, Daz, of the Daz and Daz NBA podcast. I'm joined once again by Darren Hill. Darren, did you think we'd see 50 episodes when we first started this endeavour just over a year ago? I thought we'd flame out in about 20. I really did. I thought, yeah, <laughs> we'd get, give it a crack. And, you know, we're, I thought the playoffs from last year were going to just drive us so, you know, drive us to boredom that we would have, you know, done a mic drop and, and ran away. But, uh, uh, no, short answer, no. But man, I'm glad we have. This is a. Uh, I've already had more fun in the first two rounds of the playoffs this year than probably all of the entire last year's, and I mean, including the finals. I probably have. So I'm I'm thrilled we got here, and it's been fun. Yeah, I think there was one interesting series last year. It was that Spurs Houston series, and apart from that, mm-hmm. it was a uh, it was pretty tough sledding. An interesting subplot though of the second round, and given that we had uh, three go five games and one go four games, this is starting to impact the CBA does and and the salary cap because TV revenue is a big part of that, and the fact that these series are not going all that long, and then they would have been thankful to get a lot more games in round one than they got last year, but they would really, I think the NBA or the Players Association would really like to see these uh, conference finals go six, seven games. You need to start um, increasing your tax rate on the Canadian teams, then I think Daz is perhaps <laughs> the, the move of CBA if it's... I think that's where the, that's where the the culpability falls is in Canada. Well, that's quite possible. I mean, in fairness, I guess to the Raps, they, they were the well, they in in reality, I should say, they were the only team that really folded up their tent. I mean, Utah, New Orleans, and Philly played it out. They they played tough to the end. They were just overmatched um, as a team. Now, Philly, it's a bit hard to say they were overmatched. They were, they were such close games, but they just couldn't execute down the stretch of those games, and that's what the playoffs yeah. is all about. So what we're going to do tonight, Daz, is we're going to talk about the conference finals. So our conference finals are set. We pretty much felt we would be here last last uh, week. So we've got uh, the same conference finals in the East. Uh, I don't think that's a massive surprise from where we were at the start of the season. You wouldn't have been overly surprised to hear that it's Cleveland-Boston. But how we've gotten here has been very surprising. So we might start by talking about that series. And then, of course, the series that we narrowly missed out on last year, which was uh, Houston-Golden State. Houston, obviously, a much different uh, animal this year to tackle for Golden State than what they would have been last year. So what we're going to do, there's, I think there's a clear underdog in both of these series, Daz. I think Golden State and Cleveland are the favourites. What we're going to do tonight is you're going to make the case for Boston in the East, and I'm going to make the case for Houston in the West. Uh, I think we're both sort of leaning towards Cleveland and, and Golden State anyway, but just as a way, I guess, to facilitate the discussion about the conference finals, it's it's good to make the case for the underdog and say, well, what chance do they have? So make me a believer, Daz. I'm, I'm leaning towards Cavs in five or six. What, what are the chances? I mean... How does Boston win this series, or even stretch it out to a game seven? Let's say. Yeah, just Mike. My, my, am I sort of researching this and getting my head around um, the Philly series and Milwaukee series with Boston, which wasn't hard. So I think I've seen almost. I probably have only missed one or two of the Celtics postseason. Interestingly enough, um, I did some research around uh, just looking at who other predictions and. Just using one, you know, the evil beast uh, ESPN, um, 22 of their analysts have have made predictions. 19 of them have picked the Cavs, and 19 of the 22 also picked 
Golden State. So I think tipping is a is a mild word. These are these are pretty overwhelmingly favors. That's not saying they're they're going to pay. Everyone's picking sweeps, but it's almost universal, right? We're talking ninety percent of punditry here is picking Cavs dubs. So with that context, look, um, I'm probably more. Um, I'm more in the camp of a seven-game series between Cleveland and Boston, and it didn't take me—it didn't actually take me long to to see Boston's path to victory. Again, just having seen how they—I guess my first point was about um, uh, just thinking about what Al Horford in particular has done against Giannis in round one, and then what he did against Embiid in round two. And I'd say the mildest way to describe how he's played is he's played these two all-world talents um, to a standstill. And I would even say for probably bigger, definitely a big chunks of the Philly series and, and certainly the home games in Boston, I would dare say he outsmarted Giannis, probably didn't outplay him, but he outplayed and outsmarted Embiid. So I think number one for me as it relates to Cleveland is if Horford's you know, um, putting heads on spikes, he's got Giannis at the bottom of the totem pole, he's got Embiid's, you know, sinewy, loudmouth, <laughs> you know, dripping with venom skull in the middle. And I think Kevin Love, it's not LeBron, it's Kevin Love. So when I thought about also um, Cleveland's success and LeBron's re-engagement with the team and LeBron doing GOAT stuff, it was, I think, large part of seeing Kevin Love emerge and getting that mojo again, getting that confidence to say, you know what, if I've got a number two running mate, fuck everyone, we can do this. And so for me, the, the case for Boston is if Al Horford can do his mojo on Kevin Love, chase him off the line, get out, close out on the threes, do enough of the lateral movement when Kevin Love does his little his little shoulder fake from three-point land and tries to truck truck into the lane. If, if Al can do what he did to – sorry, there's a really radical cat fight literally happened outside my windows here. I don't mean in a super sexy Seinfeld way. I mean actual alley cats here. You know, sorry. There's a lot, a lot of wildlife here in the Daz and Daz podcast recently. <laughs> uh, but, well, um, I moved the budgie out tonight, so we don't have to worry about the budgie. the budgie out, good one. So point number one, if Al can do to Kevin Love, particularly on the defensive end, that's that's going to be a case where you certainly say that's going to put a lot more pressure than on on LeBron and the, and the shooters. So that for me is number one. If you can neutralize Kevin Love and get him down away from those 28 and 15 games and more down into the... You know, if he's scoring 15 points and 10 rebounds, I think you put a ton of pressure on the Cleveland's other secondary players, which we haven't seen much of. I think that's a that good point, Daz. I mean, yeah. I think you can make an argument that Al Horford's the second best player individually in the playoffs, so far, or second most important at the very least, behind obviously LeBron. Uh, and to your point, he very much led them uh, to their seven-game win against Milwaukee and, and the, the easier five-game win against Philadelphia. So it's... And this is a guy who's put a burn almost guy over the years with Atlanta and even with Boston last year. So he has really taken a step up in this year's playoffs, both defensively and offensively. He's crazy. It's been crazy. Someone smarter than us will, especially if they beat Cleveland, is going to put together the, the Al Horford tapes or maybe Bill Bleep and Simmons has already done it. But just the stuff he's done is mind-boggling. Just Again, someone will put the analytics together, but the eye test and just watching him play – He's been, spectac- he's been spectacular. Giannis and Embiid, I mean, pick two harder harder matchups, right? Very, very different style players, and he's done brilliantly. So that for me is point one. I know we're trying to be brief here, but that for me is the biggest point, is if Al can do to Kevin Love 
now you've got now you've got yourself something really interesting so that's going to have to create the sick the, the knock-on effect is is a Jordan Clarkson or as a Rodney Hood or is it some of these secondary scorers who've been non-existent for Cleveland going to step up number two then right I suppose this is the obvious the power of Boston right is there is their depth. We've seen it all year long. So I'm like, I you need to throw every single body at LeBron that you can. Don't just glue Shemi Ojale. Don't just glue J- Jalen Brown to him. You're going to have to try and throw shit at him. Make him work. Make him think. Make him do different things. Just make LeBron do all the calculations. So throw, throw Shemi, throw Jalen, throw some Tatum, throw some Morris. Heck, you know, when you're switching up, throw some Marcus Smart who won't back down. So I think that's the best you can do against LeBron when he's disengaged is just slow him down, make him think, make him work. Don't ever let him get comfortable with, you know, the way bloody um, Dwayne Casey let him get comfortable. Yes, I think it's interesting, Daz. You've got to be able to respond uh, to different things, particularly when LeBron's on the ball. So, you know, you can't let him like Dwayne Casey did you know, have multiple possessions where he's just backing down CJ Miles. I think you've got to have certain rules where LeBron gets the ball in certain areas, um, you respond in certain ways, and I'm sure that Boston will be talking about that. So they're not going to just allow, you know, Terry Rozier to to defend him on multiple possessions. Uh, But even if they do have a sort of switching defence, to your point, they've got multiple guys that they can throw at LeBron and at least make him work for his points. And I think that's what that's what uh, Toronto did in games one and three of that series when they were competitive. In games two and four, when they got blown out, he just had it far too easy. Far too easy, that's right. A subtle point to this as well is that obviously you can't call timeouts when the other team has the ball, but you know, Stevens has proven his mettle with his strategic use of timeouts. And as it relates to LeBron, when he starts going... Um, he's going to have to really pick his places wisely if he needs to, you know, break a run or break a rhythm and get his team together. So I think it's a little subtle point, but probably a um, probably a little bit less about the um, a little bit less important than the talent. But I think Stevens has got that little trick right when he just sort of knows and can read a game really well. When he needs to call a timeout, regroup, and have a you know have a different approach and drop an X's and O to break a you know break a bit of a run. So. Um, so that's the, I think it's the best you can hope for, the way LeBron's engaged is throw variety at him um, and just make him work his tail off. So that was my second point. So I'm, the third one for me is that relating to um, just how, you know, really, right, this season was on knife's edge for Cleveland. If those two shots for Korver don't go in, right, and Cleveland goes down, you know, three games to three games to one, Korver hit those two late threes to kind of bring it even and, you know, they – I think we kind of felt Cleveland was in control from there. Um, it's the run at Corver. So the Boston rule here is you've got to run at Corver. Um, he's been pretty deadly. Uh, he literally can sort of save the season for them. So Indiana didn't do that well enough, obviously, there at the end. Lost a bit of track of him. Their head got, you know, heads got on a swivel a bit, and there he was sneaking off in the corner. So it's perhaps stating the obvious, but you're going to have to run at Corver and close out, and that means that means everybody, especially in transition. Um, number four then is the uh, you have to you're gonna have to take care of business at home. They they didn't win a single game. This is Boston, right? Didn't win a single game against the Bucks on the road, and they would have won. Well, of course they won one against Philadelphia, didn't they? Yep. Um, they win both. No, they, no, won, they won one. Both. One game three, and then they lost game four in Philly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And they came back home and closed it in game five. That's right. So you got to win. You got to win all your home games. So that's where I think this series could get out of hand in Cleveland's way first. If Cleveland comes out and, 
you know, LeBron has a, a field day in, you know, game one, you might start to see um, some cracks in the in the Boston armor. So it's just a it's a take care of business at home for Boston. Um, and then I guess probably related back to point number two, throwing bodies is the again. This is not news. This is not a take. But you do your best to bait LeBron into jumpers into threes when he gets going downhill. Um, he's obviously as deadly as anyone almost in NBA history when he gets going downhill. That's where I think guys like Marcus Smart can be really effective, where if he needs to get up on LeBron, you know, from 50 feet away and just shift his direction, you know, get him, make him go a different direction, make him take an extra two seconds before, you know, before they start their set. So it's get, get into, get into him quickly, get into him quickly. Um, and then back off and bait him into jumpers if he can, if they're doing an inside out game with, with with Kevin Love, it's you know sag sag sag, and that's again that's not a news, that's not a take. And Boston's been pretty good about that with with LeBron, or sorry, with Giannis, for sure in round one. Um, you're going to have to do your best to bait him into threes and live with it. If you're going to lose the series by LeBron draining, you know um, mid range jumpers and, and threes, then I think um, pretty much all of Boston Nation could live with that. But you can't you can't live and die by again the the, the you might as well just play eight seconds of a video on Dwayne Casey's epitaph, which is the final eight seconds of that um, game four, that game four winner at the coast to coast by LeBron, where they just decided to let him run the entire length of the court and didn't try anything. So you got to get into him and make him shoot a jumper at a minimum. And then the other strategy, which Boston seems to be good at for the last 40 years is get lucky, (laughs) right? You you know, bank on the luck, bank on referees, They can bank on, you know, Aaron Baines draining some more threes. Maybe maybe there's a, the Kelly Olynyk moments. Maybe the, this year's Kelly Olynyk is, you know, Gershon Yabusele or, or Shane Larkin doing, you know, doing something, scoring 20 off the bench one game. But they're going to need that, right? There's going to be times where you've seen, certainly in the Bucks series, less so in the Philly series because Philly's just so disorganized. But the Boston's offense would just clog down. And it was just it would grind. It would grind in that series against the Bucks, and so you start doing that against against Cleveland, and let Cleveland rest right on defense. Let Cleveland take it easy for three, four, five minutes at a time, you know, to rev their engines to get them going. That's going to be in trouble. So they're going to need the Shane Larkins or the, you know, the sort of the eight through ten guys on the team to do some to have some Kelly Olynyk like performances. So the the chemistry is there. The the confidence is there. Uh, the leadership is there from the Horford perspective. I think the fearlessness is there from the Marcus Smart perspective. And a lot, again, it's, you can't, you almost can't put this down to a strategy, but it's, you know, will the rookie wall ever hit Jason Tatum? Will Jalen Brown realize that he's not supposed to be doing this this early in his career? So enormous amount more, I guess, burden on those two guys as well. But um, that kind of goes without saying. So I'm probably a little more bullish on their chances. And I guess 19 to the 23, would I have the nerve to pick him? No, but this is going to be a long series. I really think this is a, you know, this is a minimum six game series. I don't think there's no way Cleveland's going to steamroll the way they steamrolled Toronto. That's my thing. That's my thing. Uh, I don't think they'll steamroll the way they steamrolled Toronto, but I, I can see it going in five, maybe six games. Uh, the the big question, I think, and you touched on it, you, you think the confidence is there. That That's the big question for me. Do they really believe they can beat LeBron and I think Indiana did believe they could do it. Now obviously they fell short, but only very, only just short. 
Toronto did not believe they could do it. And, and that was quite evident in the two close games that they had, particularly game one of that series. So if we get a close game in this series, that's where I think it's going to be interesting. What's the mindset for Boston? Do they really believe? And, and where they've got an advantage in that is they go into the huddle and I think they're, they're all... You know, if Brad Stevens tells them we can win this or, or whatever he's saying, I think they're engaged and they believe this guy can lead us to victory. Whereas I'm not sure, that, or Toronto certainly didn't seem to have that uh, in in the last series. And I think with Indiana, it was more, you know, follow Vic, Vic Oladipo's lead and see if he can take us there. Um, the, the the worry I have with Boston is I just think the, the offense is so poor and so anemic uh, for the most part, and they will have stretches in this series where they score two points in in four minutes, right? And you and and Cleveland's weakness obviously is the defensive end. It's not the offensive end, and and Boston's strength is the defensive end. I just think Cleveland's offense is a little bit better than what um, Boston's defense is, and their defense isn't as bad as what Boston's offense is, if that makes sense. So, and I think you're going to see Cleveland just go on runs in this in this series of 16-2 runs, you know, 12-0 runs, things like this. And Boston, I don't see where their sort of runs come from, um, other than maybe if, if LeBron's on the bench for extended periods. Uh, I do think they've they, they got the defence to make a Boston, a, a Cleveland work for it. But my worry is, too, the style of offence Boston plays, I think that... that uh, plays into Cleveland's defence. Uh, you really want to be attacking the rim relentlessly and attacking mismatches. And I'm not sure Boston are set up to do that. Maybe Al Horford can, but I mean, even Horford, I think he's a 2010 guy in terms of what stats he's going to put up. I don't think you're expecting him to put up 30-plus points. They need someone to really take over on the offensive end, I feel. And I don't think Tatum's ready to do that yet. I don't think Brown's necessarily ready to do that yet. Maybe it's a different guy every night. You know, maybe they get the, a big game from Brown, big game from Tatum. You know, maybe Marcus Morris has another one of his big games that we saw uh, more towards the end of the regular season. We've seen glimpses of in the playoffs so far. Maybe that's the key for them. But I just don't see that their offense is going to be good enough. And I think there's going to be periods of um, ineptitude on, at that end that's going to cost them um, at the end of the day. So I'll, I'll pencil uh, Cleveland in... In five, I think that they're, they're going to be too good. I think they're, they're good enough to win a couple of games in Boston. Boston have been very good in the close games. They've won, obviously, game one very close against Milwaukee and a couple of close ones uh, against Philly. I don't think... I mean, Cleveland's clutch play this year, Daz, has been absolutely spectacular. And I, and I said to you today, I think we're really witnessing history this year of LeBron taking the next step um, in his evolution to go up to that Jordan level where he just, at the end of games, is is non unstoppable. Yeah, look, I guess I would just my two counterpoints to the to the confidence in the in the clutch time is, you know, Boston took control of Game Seven in Round One and it wasn't really close. They just they took a grip early and just never let go, which is pretty impressive for such a young team um, facing uh, Chris Middleton who just couldn't miss. The entire series and you know Giannis was very consistently Giannis and you know Bledsoe even showed up to play in game seven and it still wasn't even that close of a game so that was that's confidence point number one in the closeout game and, and number two was the again game five a hotly contested very physical game five against Philadelphia and Philadelphia was throwing everything at them and Philadelphia was playing pretty well by their standards and just 
the just were the irresistible force, the immovable object, more the immovable object, I guess, in Boston's case. And they, you know, they held strong in, in game five there. So I think there's, they're stealing, right? It's, this is stealing their resolve. This is stealing the, the, the sentiment of this team, which is we're playing with fucking house money here, right? We've been playing with house money. We think when Haywood went down, we've been playing with all the free money in the world. Now, when Kyrie went down and look at us, right? Our quote, quote unquote, best two players are out. Now look at us just stomp through, you know, the two unicorns and Giannis and, and Embiid, you know, in increasingly easy fashion. So I think they're, I'm not worried about the the confidence or the clutch time performances. I'm with you though. It's the, can they, can they survive those four or five minute grinds when they go, right? They make, they score two points in, in eight possessions, right? That's, that's the key, right? So um, I'm more confident. I'm saying this is a minimum six game series. I'm still picking Cleveland because um, I still think I, I wasn't asked to argue their side, but we've also seen yeah. there's a lot of untapped there's untapped parts of them as well. We've seen nothing from the Jordan Clarkson sort of instant offense. We've seen nothing from the defensive energy and disruption of say a Larry Nance Jr. Like there's players who've literally done nothing. Where I still think they've got some gears and some variety in their game that they didn't really have to exercise against Toronto because Toronto didn't force them to exercise any variety. Toronto just let them be great at what they were great at and just didn't fight back. So um, I think it's a minimum six-game series, but I'm picking Cleveland. But that's yeah, the, the, the final two points I make, uh, LeBron's obviously not worried about going to Boston. Uh, this is the, the, the arena that really made him when you think back to his Miami days and he went in there down 3-2 and they were on the cusp of going out and he had that amazing game six against the Celtics yeah. and he hasn't really looked back from that point in terms of what he's done in his career. And the other point I'd make is I think Ty Lue needs to get some uh, some love here because this is a guy that... that I've certainly questioned, I think you have as well, as his head coaching credentials over the time. Look, I don't think he's necessarily the greatest regular season coach, but he doesn't necessarily have to be with that roster. But he's made all the right moves uh, in this offseason. He, he completely outcoached Dwayne Casey uh, in the previous series, and off the outcoached Nate McMillan as well in the first round. There was just little things like, you know, going to George Hill when he needed to in Game 7 uh, against Indiana and just pulling the right strings in terms of the lineups that he had out there. Uh, in the, in the when they needed it, in the moments when they needed it in Toronto, he was always one step ahead uh, of what Toronto wanted to do. So I still think, obviously, there's a coaching edge uh, with with uh, Boston in this series, but I don't think it's pronounced as what we may have thought in the past. And one player we're not going to be seeing much of, Daz, from the Cleveland bench is Rodney Hood because he refused to come in uh, at the end of... Um, Game four in the Raptors series, so uh, I'm not sure what the future lies there for Rodney Hood, but it certainly hasn't worked out from his point of view or the team's point of view because I think they they really would have thought he was going to be a contributor for this team. Look, maybe we'll, we'll see something off the bench, but I'd be surprised if we saw much of Rodney Hood um, at this stage. So uh, th- they'd be the last points I'd make. Uh, as I say, I'm, I'm going Cleveland in five. That that series starts tomorrow morning, 5.30am, Daz. I'm um, not sure if I'll be getting up for the tip-off, but I'll certainly try and catch the last quarter um, before the, the school day starts and, and, and get the kids uh, off the school and things like that. I'm going dramatic fashion again. This is LeBron's already logged 3,500 minutes since the beginning of the season. I think it's going to add up. It's going to be um, Cleveland in seven. They're going to win the last two games. They're going to take TCB at home and close them out in the garden in dramatic and, you know, on the road only the way LeBron can. So well, long series. I think it's a long series. 
Okay. It was a long series. Yeah. I'd love to say. Let, let's move on to the next series, um, the Houston Golden State series. Now, I've uh, taken um, the role here of, of making the case for the underdog, so I'm going to take Houston. Let's hear it. Well, they weren't the underdog, Daz, uh, heading in. We were both on the Houston bandwagon, I think, coming into the playoffs. But, gee, Golden State have just been so good. And, and obviously, we'll get to them. But that's, that's sort yeah, of Curry. what yeah. has put Houston in this in this situation. Look, the first thing I'd say is um, Clint Capella. I think he's the, the bit of an X factor in this series. This is the one player that Golden State won't be able to match up on. He's a different matchup than what we've seen, what they've seen so far, certainly from Anthony Davis and, uh, dare I say, Pau Gasol in the first round series. So this is a guy that can attack the rim. The the big question, I guess, for Golden State is, do they need to go tall to match him? Uh, so do you start with a JaVale McGee? Do you, I, I don't think there's any case where they go and give Zaza big minutes. Uh, maybe Jordan Bell gets a bit of a run in this series, but there's question marks there. Or do they just go with Looney and maybe say, look, we're going to go small and we're going to see if we can go with this team um, going small. So I think Capella gives them a gives Houston an edge because this is a big guy that can stay on the floor against Golden State, uh, at least theoretically, and, and be able to switch on some of the shooters uh, and be able to chase some of these guys around the floor. And critically, I think, for, for Houston, give them a chance at, at rebounding because Golden State, the two uh, major things that they've done in the first two rounds is out-rebound the opposition. They absolutely smashed the Spurs on the boards and they did the same thing with uh, New Orleans. In the in the game five, Daz, New Orleans at one stage had missed 28 shots and had not got one offensive board in the entire game. So, and what Draymond Green's doing at the moment is he's, he's Dennis Rodman-like in that he knows the angles. So he's just putting himself in the right position at all times to get the rebound. So if Capella can get in there the way he's done against Utah, and uh, well, I didn't see as much of the Minnesota series, but his rebounding numbers were certainly good enough, where he's just tapping that ball back, giving them extra possessions, that's going to be absolutely critical um, to what they do. So Houston's one of the few teams, I think, that can stay big against Golden State and make them play some of these big guys. And I think if, McGu- if Javale McGee's out there, I can see a scenario where Javale McGee picks up 3,000 the first minute and then they're scrambling <clears throat> with their rotations and they need to make changes. Um, yeah, I was just curious. One of the questions I, I'm thinking about is the, you know, can Kerr use his rotations of his bigs? His he's got listed six centers on his roster, right? Which is crazy <laughs> if, when you think about including, I guess, technically Damian Jones, but you know Looney Bell, um, Zaza, David West plays actually a lot of five, and then obviously Javale. Is that with Capella's out there? Can you, you know, will you see some hack of Capella? Will you see some things, you know, late in the quarters, you know, certain late in the second quarter, late in the third in particular, you know, in if he's if he's getting going. Because he's a terrible free throw shooter, so it'll be interesting. I've not seen it become a factor yet in the playoffs, but it'll be in these games if they're tight. You know, I can see will that be a factor if the game is close? Will they do the hack? You know, they got plenty of fouls to you know to pass around McGee, Pachulia, and so forth. So that was one curiosity I have. I've not seen, I've ever seen D'Antoni do that, but it's just or if it's a trick. I'm sorry, not D'Antoni, but but Kerr do that, but it's a. Um, well, Capella was better in the regular season this year uh, in terms of 
in terms of his uh, three-phase shooting. So you would hope, from Houston's point of view, um, that that's not necessarily going to be as uh, as effective as what it may have been. Fifty-six percent, though, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he, and and that's the hacker strategy. I mean, if someone's shooting about sixty percent, that that it becomes a bit counterintuitive um, to be able to do that. So I guess it depends on how and and, and in terms of. To that point, I think it's probably counterintuitive for the Warriors because they don't want to play a slow pace. And if you start doing hackers, whoever, that slows the pace down. And Houston, of course, the amazing thing last year playing at such a fast pace, and we we spoke about the Spurs-Houston series last year, and it was about the Spurs trying to slow it down and Houston trying to speed it up. This year, it's the complete opposite. I think this is going to be a series where Houston are trying to slow the pace down and Golden State are going to try and uh, speed the, the game up. We saw Utah do that a little bit, I think, and similar to what I said with LeBron in terms of rules, I think there's going to be some rules for Golden State in this series. So if James Harden goes in and has a drive and misses, I think they're going to be off to the races. If they miss a corner three, I think they're going to be off to the races. I think in certain scenarios, Golden State are just going to be out running and test out this uh, transition defense of the Houston Rockets. So it's going to be critical for Houston to get this into a half-court game, use up 20 seconds every time down the court, uh, and obviously, the, and, and given that they're playing that sort of ISO ball, um, just get the Warriors into the grind. And, and the Warriors can play slow. You can slow the pace down against the Warriors. The Spurs certainly did it effectively in round one. They just didn't have the talent to bring it through. But I think you can slow those games down against the Warriors, uh, unlike, say, New Orleans, I think, who will enforce their will on the game a bit more from a pace point of view. So if they get the pace at their at their level, I think that's going to be absolutely critical for them in terms of winning this series. The third point I'd make is don't get frustrated at the officials. If you go in and think you get fouled, just get back on transition D because every time they're sitting down there bitching at officials, does it's going to be three points. That's that's just as simple as that with this team you're playing against with Golden State. Um, the fourth point I made is I think James Harden needs to play like an MVP on the offensive end and he needs to be at the very best a below-average defender on the defensive end because I think that's the best we can hope for. If he is just horrendously bad on defense and he, and he was pretty poor at times in the Utah series. When Utah were able to get him into a switch and he was marking Donovan Mitchell, it was two or three points nearly every time. And he occasionally, he, he was fouling. I think he could he could be at a risk of getting into foul trouble in this series if they continue the switch and if he gets switched onto the wrong matchups. So he needs to at least compete in the defense. D'Antoni's got to have some some sort of thinking, I guess, as to where to hide him, where he wants to place him on the defensive end, uh, because they're going to be running him through a heap of screens. They're going to be trying to tire him out. And we saw him there that apparently he was under the weather in game five against Utah, so I'll take Houston at their word on that, but it wasn't a great performance. He hasn't been himself, Daz, in these playoffs again. There's big playoff questions about this guy. I don't think there's... I think the playoff questions as they are about Chris Paul are overblown. I don't think they're overblown about James Harden. I think there's a lot of pressure on him coming into this series. He's going to need to average 35 points a game in this series and at least play, you know, even if it's below average defense. You can't just be a turnstile at the defensive end against this team. Uh, the other quick points I'd make is pick your poison with them. So, And you've got to talk about Draymond Iguodala, but uh, do a little secret. 
at the moment for Golden State. Kevin Durant's not shoot, hasn't shot the three ball well at all uh, in this uh, playoff so far. Clay Thompson was ice cold. He was under thirty percent against New Orleans, but he was almost sixty percent against the Spurs. So he's been a little bit uh, hot and cold so far this series. It might be a matter of it. It really is going to be a matter of pick your poison. Who do you want to leave? or at least take the chance that they're going to hit some threes. Draymond Green's been shooting over 40% from three uh, in the plus, or certainly in the in the New Orleans series. So he's probably not the guy you're going to leave open. But it's like, you know, you, you're probably not going to get away with leaving Kevin Durant too, too open either. So th- that's going to be interesting to see who do they... And, and really, we pick your poison. Sometimes it might be just who do you put James Harden on um, because that, that may be the guy that has the most open shots. The last point I'd make is I'd like to see them have multiple lineups to throw at Golden State, and I think they've been building Daz to this matchup all year, and this is what really disappoints me about Mike D'Antoni as a coach. He's now got his eight guys, and I think that's it. You know, I think I don't think too many. Are, I think it's coming off the bench is going to be Mbam Mute, um, Gerald Green, and Nene. I don't think you're going to see Tariq Black. I don't think you're going to see Joe Johnson. I'm not even sure why they signed Joe Johnson uh, at this point. You're not going to see Ryan Anderson. Um, other guys that you th- you sort of think maybe could have helped, but they just had they've had no minutes in the playoffs so far in what's been two reasonably easy series for them. I would have thought he would have been wanting to have multiple lineups to throw at Golden State in this matchup because if 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 Plan A is not working for this team. I'm not convinced that they've got a plan B and a plan C with D'Antoni. It's just going to be keep throwing plan A out there until it works. And that's the frustration that I have with, with D'Antoni as a playoff coach. I just don't think he's he's capable enough of, of making the change you need to make. Like, I don't think is going to be able to play much in this series. So if he's not if he's not at all effective, what are they going to expect? You know, Capella's not going to play 40 minutes a night. Are we going to see PJ Tucker at centre? For multiple, for for long stretches, that's not something they've really tried in in, in big parts either. So that's one of the worries for me. I would love, I'd be more confident about Houston if I'd seen more of these type of matchups and 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 more lineups that I'd go. You know what? I've seen that line that that could actually work in Golden State. Whereas I think Steve Kerr, on the other hand. I think he does have the well. He's got the best lineup that he can throw out there anyway in the NBA. He knows he's always got that in his back pocket. But I think he's got other iterations of lineups at his disposal for this particular matchup that he'd already have in the back of his mind. Yeah, I think I can't disagree with anything. The the one point I would add, which is of the six, the one I would have probably inserted was the and you almost I thought you were going to go there, but it was the. Um, uh, when you're picking your poise and making the case for Houston is you're going to have to force Steph, force Steph to play defense. And that means going to mean um, right, running him like running him ragged um, and perhaps having longer possessions. So maybe that's part of what you're saying is you need to Houston needs to slow, slow it down to a crawl, which is also means I think if you stand there and watch James Harden dribble that fucking ball for 15 seconds, Steph's resting. He's going to sit over there, just literally, and and sit conserving his energy for the offensive end. But you're going to have to need to try and get longer possessions, and not just settle for the you know step back, you know step back three where there's not a single pass on the possession. And guys like Eric Gordon, they're going to, they're going to need to they're going to need to test stuff. Can his does his legs have the lateral strength? Does he have that twitchiness as Zach Lowe likes to say? He's got the twitchy factor. 
you know, if, if he's got that quick twitch off the both legs, the ankles are firing, the knees are firing, you're probably dead, but you're going to have to force him to work on D, force him to go laterally, force him to try and keep pace, you know, with guys, force him to do closeouts, you know, on pins downs in the corner, do things to get him running on defense. So I think that's your only hope, I think, is to test, test Curry, test him. Right. Um, well, if I had faith they were going to do that, I probably would have put it in there. But I don't see that they'll do that. I think I think Golden State are going to I do that either, to Harden. Like, yeah, I, I think, think Golden State dead, will but... do it to Harden. Certainly Houston should do it to Curry, but that's just not been their DNA this year, Daz. Maybe when Chris Paul's running the offense, not, you may yeah. see that a little bit more. But when James Harden's running that offense, Daz, it's going to be you guys stand in your spots and watch yeah. the magic. <laughs> This is like just trying to just invite a boa constrictor to to suffocate you. I just, it's weird. I go a, a, a few months ago, right, or maybe a couple months ago. I was thinking, especially with an, when Clay was or not Clay when when Steph was out. It's a different it's a different story, isn't it? I think it's a different story. But even an eighty percent Steph, if you don't try and grind him down to fifty percent Steph, or ooh, you know what, maybe Steph needs to rest in game three, you know, sort of stuff. If you're not forcing him and putting a physical toll on him, you are you're asking for it. So, and having watched them play defense, man, when they're engaged on defense, he's going to stand around and do pick and roll. They're just going to hack Capella. Zaza's going to, you know, not going to let him land clean. So, <laughs> um, and you say, interesting. I, I love your six points. I just I thought, okay. So maybe your point was you have no faith in their ability to to force Steph to work on defense, but uh. I think that they have no choice unless unless they find a way to do that, and I don't know. Yeah, so I'm actually I'm. It was a cool exercise to make the case for the underdog, but I'm I'm probably more confident, believe it or not, in Boston as flawed as they are without their quote unquote two best players than I am uh, than I am um, Houston. Oh, I think so Houston. You? Houston. I give Houston a better chance than Boston to win the series. To win the, to win series, the series, yes, I right. do. I think it's okay. going to be six. I got Golden State in six. Uh, I think the whistle is going to be critical. Uh, if Houston can get the 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 game officiated the way they want, yeah. which is ticky touch fouls, you know, uh, it, like if you see game one and and Houston are able to be physical on one end and they're getting the ticky touch stuff at the other end, which is what I saw at times in the Utah series. Uh, I think Golden State are going to be in trouble in that game. You know, I think, um, and Golden State, look, not not known to handle it well when they think the refereeing is going against them either, does. So that's something else to keep in the back of your mind that Golden State really need to. Uh, yeah. Don't bitch at the officials really goes for both teams because Golden State need to keep their cool because they're going to be baiting him in the fouls. Chris Paul's been doing it all year. Eric Dorden's been doing it all year. James Harden's is the master. So yeah. they're going to be doing that sort of shit. I mean, they had. When, the game when Utah went up by 19 and eventually won in game two. Um, I think um, Nate Duncan made the point. He said, he said that was the most uninspiring comeback I've ever seen from a 19-point deficit. It was just a, a, a litany of baited fouls and just a walking to the free-throw line, shooting through free-throws, you know, and he said it was just slow, boring basketball. He said, but then you look up and the 19-point lead has been done down to two. So it can happen that way. Um, so Golden State defend without fouling is going to be critical for them this series. And that's not something they've always done that well. And as I say, they don't always handle 
getting into what they feel like is the rough end of the stick. So I think that's yeah. going to be critical. The, the mentality of Golden State, can they keep their cool? Can they keep their poise and composure playing against a team that really does like to get under your skin like the Houston Rockets? That's going to be a critical thing. And that's where I can see, if, if you told me Houston are going to win, I think that that's where I can see things breaking down. Um, and of course, you know, if you go to where Golden State did lose uh, in the series against um, Cleveland... Going back a couple of years, the last series they lost before Durant came in, that was one of the points, wasn't it? The, the fact that, well, the two points that you've made, one was Steph had a very tough playoffs. Like he got the injury, then he had to come back. It was really tough to get through OKC, and then Cleveland were making him work every single game of that series. And they lost their composure. You know, Draymond Green nut punches LeBron in game four yep. of that series, completely changes it. I could see something like that happening again, and gee, if, if Draymond Green got suspended again or Kevin Durant gets suspended, this is a totally different series, Daz, very, very quickly. Yeah, and for me, my money's actually not on Draymond. He's not been his same self, but he's also, he's sort of, it's not receded, but he's played a bit of a lesser role in that the the, um, the lightning rod is just Durant, right? And the petulant, the petulantness. So, well, petulance? Petulance. Petulantness. Petulance, <laughs> yeah. So get, get, get Kevin crying and... Uh, you're right. You, you've got a chance. Get Kevin crying. Get Steph tired. Um, Hat Capella and off. Yeah. We'll oh, see. Look, I mean, game one of that series is on uh, Tuesday, Australian time. So we'll, we'll, I think we'll have a good sense of that series after game one. I don't think the basketball is going to be fantastic to watch in this one, Daz, but I do think we're going to get some close games at least. And down the stretch of these games is going to be something to remember. So it might be one of those series, I think, where I'm going to tune in for probably six the last six minutes if it's a close game. But uh, I just find Houston so unappealing to watch. Um, at the best of times. Uh, so I'm not overly excited about it in terms of the basketball from start to finish, but I am excited that we might get some close games in this one. And we're going to really see you know, what's James Harden made of in these moments because I think we know Chris Paul now. Chris Paul was magnificent against Utah in Game 5, 41 points. Um, him and Donovan Mitchell went head-to-head in a fantastic game uh, when Harden no-showed. Uh, albeit, uh, yeah, if you had to leave them, he was under the weather. But um, So I don't, I don't have the questions about J- Chris Paul. Well, I do have the questions yeah. about James Harden, and I think they're going to be answered to some extent in this series. Just as a reference, and you'd have to been, he would have had to have been sick for you know seven days, but he's six for his last 32 from three-point land. Yep. That James Harden, he has shot over 50% in exactly one game this entire 10-game playoffs. That was game one against the sad sack uh, Minnesota Timberwolves. So he's he's been more inefficient than he was in, in the regular season. Um, the free throws have been coming at a similar rate. Um, you know, he's still averaging about almost 10 free throws per game in the playoffs, but the six for his last 32, you know, granted, he tends with his such a high volume, that's a tiny, tiny sample set. For a lot of players, that's a big sample set, but that's uh, something, right? So it's, it's something. It's four games in a row. He's not made more than two threes. And the other point that I'll make is I'm kind of almost doubling down on the ugliness is that what we saw in the closeout game against Utah, right, was this was Chris Paul's team. Actually, the last two games, Chris Paul leading the offense Chris Paul had more he had more field goal attempts sure if he didn't sure felt it was like the he same did. field goal attempts but um, was it yeah they both shot yeah. 22 field goals but I think Chris Paul went a little, uh, might have been 
11 for 14 for 22 or something along those lines uh, and Harden yeah. was 6 for 22 yeah yeah so I'm with you I think um, I'm probably more confident in Boston but yeah I can see I can see a path for for both Boston and Houston here they're these should be these should be longer series they should be six games I think both of them yep so so what have you you're going Golden State in six I'm going um, I'm going Golden I'm going Golden State in six and Cleveland in seven yep yep Okay, so let's we'll move on there, Daz. We're going to talk about some of the eliminated playoff teams. There's a couple of teams we're not going to, to touch on, um, specifically my Spurs. I don't think there's any point even looking at the Spurs until we know what's happening with Kawhi Leonard. Uh, there's a purge happening of their assistant coaching ranks at the moment. We don't even really 100% know if Pop's coming back. We assume he is at this point and heard nothing to the contrary. But I think there's a lot of questions that are going to be answered once we know what's happening with Kawhi and other things like that. So there's not much point talking about the the Spurs. Miami's another team that we're not going to touch on. I think they're pretty much locked into their roster. We've spoken a bit about them uh, throughout these playoffs so far. Um, not a lot of room to move with them and, and not an overly yeah. interesting team, I think it's fair to say. We <laughs> I think that's probably it. <laughs> it's just boring. Yeah. Maybe um, Pat has something up his sleeve to move Whiteside, but yeah. Bit... Yeah, look, I mean, they could be an interesting yeah. off-season, but I, I don't think they're an interesting team to look back on their regular nah. season or anything like that. Let's let's talk about one team that is interesting, Daz. Philly, um, the 76ers, they have gone out to in the five-game series. Um, I thought you know, just watching it every single game, I thought they were the more talented team. But I thought Boston were just better coached, higher IQ, executed much better, um, more poise. You know, all those sort of things that I think can can matter in the playoffs. Um, but we're, we're sort of um, we're split these things up in terms of how we're going to do, um, how we're going to assess these teams into four questions. So the four questions is how did they fare versus preseason expectations. What did we learn about them in the playoffs? What one player stood out in 2017-18? And what's the biggest question for them heading into the off-season? So I'm going to throw to you on some of those. I've done a couple of the terms myself, but looking at Philly first, how do you think they fared versus their pre-season expectations? I'm going to put a timer on this as well because it would be really easy to get pulled into the, as, as we do, right, yeah. into 20 minutes per team. So I'm going to put my little stopwatch on here and see if we can keep to about six minutes each. Yeah. Um, so just because more sort of the, I think the, the idea is right? let's write the epitaph for their season, have a quick look back and what's the big question. So I think it's been such an interesting postseason already and so many compelling storylines compared to last year. But I thought rather than right, just focusing on the, the, the finals, it's uh, let's see where these teams are at. So with that, right. Um, so Philly, the how they go against preseason look, that's our sorry, against preseason expectations, radically outperformed, right? I think most predictions, a lot of people had them, I think, sneak into the playoffs. Um, but there was so many open questions, right, coming into the season was, you know, how is Fultz going to fit? Can he and, and Simmons play together in a, you know, in a very, you know, oversized, um, but, you know, who's going who's gonna to have the ball in their hands sort of backcourt? Uh, the biggest question, of course, would have been, can Embiid stay healthy? Can he play even 50 games? And can, you know, does J.J. Reddick still have it in him? You know, is he, you know, going to take his $23 million this year and, you know, having the East Coast lifestyle and, you know, doing podcasting? Was he just going to cruise <laughs> or was he going to blend in? And uh, I think they just almost they sort of blasted through every single expectation. Sarge was better than expected. The astute pickups at the All-Star break, or sorry, with the trade deadline with Bellinelli and Ilya Silva. Rocco was up and down a bit this year, but... And even with the Fultz Disappearance Act, you know, they've radically outperformed right against their, um, uh, from a regular season perspective. 
they're obviously finishing with uh, they finished number three, didn't they? That's crazy. Three number said, three yeah. seed. Yeah, so most of the preseason of the quick research or the preseason prognostications have been the seven to ten range. They thought they'd sneak into the bottom end, but that'd be about it. With all those question marks. What did we learn about them in the playoffs? This was for me the we learned probably not a lot, but that it, 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 it calcified for me that this is Embiid's team, for better or worse. Right? We saw um, Ben Simmons shrink a little bit. We saw him be a little bit hesitant, a little bit afraid. And whilst I still label Embiid a front runner, he doesn't. He hasn't quite learned how to even his temperament or to rally the troops and lift, you know, sort of lift his whole team around him when stuff gets hard. And that might come with time. It might also show that he's a little bit boogie cousins, a little bit fragile. But for better or worse, this is this is his team, right? The loose, aggressive, hectic, loud, bravado, chest thumping, staring the benches down sort of stuff. This is his team. And it was even reinforced in, you know, hearing uh, post-game interviews with him was that, you know, he would literally say things as the leader of this team. I expect this and I expect that. Now, anyway, so I don't think we learned a ton um, the other, I guess, I guess maybe the other thing I should add to that is that this being Embiid's team, I, maybe it's not the, um, did we learn it, but I think we certainly got evidence that you wonder, is the style, is that quirky, super fast action handoff, multiple perimeter passes of three feet in, you know, in distance, is that really, is that going to be an effective playoff, um, style of offense where again, it was pretty pretty easy for Boston to get their grips around that. So I'd say Philly, right, even far more, I'd say more talented than the Bucks. You know, at least the Bucks took that to seven games because of their, right, the greatness of, you know, Middleton and, and Giannis at times. You just wanted to see Philadelphia impose their will on Boston. But the ball movement and the turnovers and the sloppiness, I think you go, you start to wonder. I'm not sure if we learned that about them in the playoffs, but it starts to make you wonder, does Brett going to have to rethink a bit of, of his offensive system if he wants to break through to the next level. Um, which one player stood out in 17-18? It's a no-brainer. It's Embiid. We, you could talk about the, the downside. You say the one that stood out was Markel Fultz, um, but that's just a little bit too depressing a thread of conversation. If, if for no other reason, the fact that Embiid played, he would have played 70 games all upright, which I think probably every single person in Philadelphia Nation would have been, has to be thrilled. You know, he was not thrilled about how he was babied, in his words, and coddled and, you know, strung along sort of slowly across the season. Um, but it wasn't until mid-February he was playing back-to-backs. And he's just stood out in every way. The health, the um, the stamina, uh, which, again, increased throughout the season. And, again, just his stature as a, you know, legitimate um, uh, all-NBA sort of player. And uh, right and defensive player of the year candidate. So lots of things stood out for Philly this year, Fultz, Simmons, etc., Saric, but absolutely it's Embiid. And then the big question for me, right, is the big question heading into the offseason is what the hell is Markel Fultz? This is probably better where this question goes less about what he didn't do in 1718 than more it is what's he going to do next year is who is he? Where is his head at? Where is mechanics at? How well do the, do the teammates really embrace him? Is he is he any more than a gimmick? You know, we've seen the effectiveness of a, you know, this the smart, decisive, hardworking, but obviously very limited athletically T.J. McConnell having a very effective style of play. You know, reincarnating the the Delavadova role in the playoffs. You kind of go, what role will the? Uh, um, if my point two was a, a loose, 
fluid, aggressive, attacking you know, style of offense, and you've got a very young, loose, aggressive style player potentially with Fultz added to this mix. What's that mean? How, does that mean Simmons isn't going to have the ball as much in his hands? Can Fultz play off ball and catch and shoot sorts of you know sort, sorts of roles? If he does, what's that mean for you know? Will they bring back JJ or another sharpshooter? What's that mean for Rocco if Fultz playing off ball? All sorts of things. So for me, the questions about next year's. Who is Fultz and how is he going to play? Yeah, I think that was one of the starkest things, Des. I mean, the terms that they're playing Boston, Jason Tatum was Boston's go-to guy in crunch time from an offensive point of view, and Marco Fultz didn't play one minute in the series. So that was very stark to see where those two guys are at, albeit only in their first year. So obviously there is big questions about Fultz. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised they're shopping him in the off-season uh, because I think there's a lot of teams out there that still see the, see the potential, but I think they still see the potential in their own minds and think if this guy is what we thought he was going to be, he's a perfect fit for this team. But if he continues down the track of what he looked like in the limited minutes we saw this year, then he's not going to be a good fit for this team. So, And, and, and I still think he's got the tools to be a good player, even if he never develops a great jump shot. But he's certainly not going to hit the ceiling that they would have thought when they tra- they made that trade and took, took him at the number one pick. The second point I'd make, just on what you've said, in terms of the hectic offense, I think the end game of what Brett Brown's trying to do is build a team like that 2014 Spurs that where the ball was just zipping around everywhere, all over the gym, that yeah. takes time. You know, you've got to be patient yeah. with that. And he doesn't have the veteran guys running that system that San Antonio did. So if that's, and I think that's the end game from Brett Brown's point of view. Uh, so I would, I would preach patience with that. You would hope if they get to that sort of level of execution on the offensive end, and they've certainly got, you know, with Simmons, and we criticise them for being low IQ team, but I think that will develop as time goes on. And when you've got the likes of Simmons on there. Sorry, maybe that's your phrase, but I don't think they're low. That's that's my shorthand for when they play loose and make dumb mistakes, right? Low IQ, I think, is is like when we see Denver run ridiculous sets. I just think they're... They're just young. They're inexperienced. They're well, loose. low IQ like, to me is, yeah. like, so, with, with Game 5, for example, the first two and a half minutes of the fourth quarter in Game 5, they committed seven fouls, Des. That's low IQ. Now, the turnovers okay. might not okay. come down to low yeah. IQ. That's yeah. that's more poor execution. But but to me, at this stage of their development, they're still a low IQ team. Well, I'm, I, I would love to, if we had, well, we've already blasted past the six-minute mark, but I think that's a really great question. No, we'll get to this in the offseason when we get deeper and we you know get through the draft and stuff and start talking free agency. But that would be a great question to start to probe is the, if, if what you say is true in the Brett Brown vision of try to make, the, make that ball fly around the perimeter and inside and out and almost triangle-style offenses, right, playing off of that, I go, does that really fit the skill set and temperament of, the attacking of Joel Embiid? Does that fit the temperament of the physical beast who can't shoot a lick in Ben Simmons? I go, does that really suit them? You know, versus the Tony Parker, Manu, right, LaMarcus, the, that, the, the very, very precise veteran teams who, right, who are great spot-up shooters and are great passers and are great using the backboard and using angles. I go, God, I hope that's not a, you know, just a, a man's, personal philosophy not taking into account enough the talent of his team the way we're seeing Tibbs not have his 
he's not getting the best out of his players, and we'll talk about Minnesota in a minute. I hope that's not the future for Brett Browns. So I get your logic, but I go, gosh, is that really the best? Well, don't and forget, get, too, that, like that Spurs team had three of the best passing big men you'll ever see in Tim yeah, Duncan, Thiago yeah. Splitter, and uh, Boris Diaw. This Joel Embiid's not a good passer. Doesn't like to pass the ball. Um, no. and not not a part of his game. Then maybe he'll develop that. But I, I agree with you. I don't think the skill set and the personality of team necessarily fits what they're trying to do. But let's see if patience pays off in that yeah, point. That's, and that's what I, I still get the sense from Philly internally. They've still got a lot of patience, and then they're, they're just putting it all down the noise, the fact that um, they were probably ahead of schedule from where they did this year. Let's let's move on though, Daz. We, we'll move on to the Toronto Raptors. So they got the, they fired Dwayne Casey um, after the, another flame out against the Cavs. Um, I guess within this, uh, let me know if you think that's fair or unfair. Fair for him to get fired. You Was think that it's the question? yeah? So fair or unfair totally to get him? Really fair, hundred percent. You had to. I we saw, I think I in the last pod I, I, we saw it in real time. I was convinced. I go, you just cannot, in the same way I was convinced when Jason Kidd was having press conferences where he was um, complaining about his team being too young and too stupid because he like, literally was out of his hands, watching Dwayne Casey's body language on the bench while Kevin Love trucked C.J. Miles on multiple things where he threw up his hands and threw himself down on the bench, calling his players out having the yips, I saw his... I saw that as a man who has hit his ceiling. He would hit his ceiling as a professional and that this problem is too big for him to solve. The Cleveland Cavaliers, the LeBron thing, the problem is way too big for him, and he lost his confidence so quickly. You just can't. You cannot lose your confidence like that and show your team that it trickles all the way through that team. I saw it in real time going, that's not just a moment. That's not just a guy getting angry and getting teed up. That is a signal of defeat when he threw himself threw himself into the chair in the middle of the bench, threw his hands up, you know, when he basically, whatever, was didn't have an answer for Cleveland's offense. So 100% uh, justified in my view, 100%. Not even, not 99%, 100%. He's a, it's a problem too big for him to solve and let's get a fresh voice. Not an easy thing to do when you win 59. I get it. Mark Jackson can relate to it. Um, so it's not unprecedented. David Black can relate to it on very, very, very different circumstances, but 100%. Yeah. So in terms so, of their, how they fared versus pre-season expectations, I guess, I mean, well, they did I outperform go, that. I might go <laughs> reverse chronologist on that point. So that was going to be the biggest question, right? I thought, would it take longer for them to make a decision about coaching? But the obvious coach then following on from firing Casey's, yeah, they're going to get a new coach, but it's the how, right? How do you get over the hump? You've got a 59-win team who was by almost literally perfectly healthy, you know, coming into the playoffs and get trucked like that and get absolutely abominated. They didn't look great in the first round either, to be honest, right? Losing two games to a you know, completely dysfunctional Washington team, right? So to go what to go four and six in the playoffs, not that's not great, you know, as a fifty-nine win team. So how did they get over the hump? Well, how much what is Daz's psycho- psychology, and how much is just talent? Because even in the first round, I didn't see anything from Larry, and particularly from DeRozan. I thought Larry was much better in the second round, actually, but I didn't see anything from DeRozan that made me think. 
this guy is, is just going to put this team on his back and he really wants to be the guy that, that, that yeah, you win or lose with me in the playoffs. And, and if that's that's your best player, has that mentality, it's hard to, to, to sort of break through, isn't it? It is. And you start, you know, the way um, the broader conversation around how teams like Cleveland and Golden State in particular are, you know, taking their foot off the gas during the regular season and almost diminishing things like the MVP. They go, all right, DeRozan's great when the games don't mean anything. But then the intensity level jumps up, right? And you're playing a team multiple multiple times. You need you need a different sophistication. You need Chris Paul-like, you know, or LeBron-like or Curry-like. You need the sophistication to be able to outthink and outplay and outwit and outflex. And you just, right? When it gets like that, I just kind of go, maybe DeRozan is a really great athlete, a really awesome dude who just doesn't have it in him, right, to, to, to outthink, to outwill, to outwork, right, to, to be able to keep the temperament and lift teammates around him. Lowry has elements of it, but Lowry's not the same player. Lowry's slowing down, right? Now, he, had a, he had a pretty decent playoffs, but he's not the same player as he was three years ago, Right. So he's not going to be scoring, you know, doing 25 and 12 games anymore. He's just not. So so I think it's both is the short answer. It is temperament, it is confidence, and I think it's a talent level. And, again, the big question for us since November or December was, can, can Casey use his strength, which is his phenomenal bench, and stick with it? And he couldn't. He couldn't. And... Um, and maybe that was right. Maybe that was his undoing. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was inevitable that LeBron, no matter the lineups they threw out, were going to do it. But I think they're going to need. They're going to need to look at everything. I don't have the answer, but they have to. They're going to look at the whole thing: philosophy, roster reconstruction. Do you break up DeRozan and, and Lowry? Um, do you package, you know, some attractive bench pieces, you know, to get maybe a, you know, sort of a third star? Can you somehow salvage something from Ibaka and sell him off for a couple parts? Or you know, get, resuscitate his career somehow in a in a different role. A lots of questions, a, a ridiculous number of questions for a, a 59 win team. So I, just I didn't I don't even have the one biggest question because there's just there's so many. Yeah, I think from franchise. my point of view, I, I feel like OG Ananobi is going to be the third star, but that's probably not going to be for another two or three seasons. And then by that stage, obviously Larry's in a completely different part of his career. And, and DeRozan's probably certainly out of his prime as well. So then you've got, you haven't really got the third star. <laughs> and then they might be their yeah. only star. And that's if, if he meets his um, meets, uh, his trajectory that I have him on. I mean, yeah. is there an, I, I guess maybe there's some questions there. Do you look at trading Ananobi and saying, look, let's cash in on him and let's try and make hay while the sun shines with these two guys? Or do you look to rebuild around this young core, including Van Vliet, um, who could you know, project to be a, a very quality starter in his own right uh, in the NBA? They're the sort of questions I think they're going to be asking um, in the, well, the yeah, offseason. 50 million a year locked up in DeRozan and Lowry for the next two anyway. Uh, two more years on Lowry's contract, right? So that's, uh, I think that's your, where you have to start there, is my view. But going backwards, sort of reverse chronology from question four at the, of the off season, question three, which is what player stood out for me, it was Ananobi. Of all the, you know, of all the, the performances in the bench, and Fred Van Vliet gets a, you know, an honorable mention here, but Ananobi, amongst an amazing class, amongst a, a deep, one of the best benches in the league amongst the number one seed. That was pretty special, right, for him to play 74 games 
Averaged 20 minutes a game, playing significant time, started started 62 games. I couldn't believe that. I didn't realize he'd started 62 games, Des. I thought he was still more of the um, a bench player, but had a significant role, a significant role on a number one seed. You know, shot 37% from three this year and had his had his moment. He had his, uh, you know, Giannis had his chase down block, you know, alley-oop dunk moment as a, you know, a gangly rookie. And Anobis was drilling that, um, drilling that three to tie the game with eight seconds left before LeBron did his magic. But to, to take that shot, to gather his feet, to do the pump fake, as I said in the last pod, just that moment, you, you bubble that up and you go, that was a guy under complete control and probably more so than his coach. That guy was under complete control on the court, and you love to see that from a young player. So I'm with you. I don't think, I don't, I'm still not going crazy with the, you know, the Kawhi comparisons yet, but I can see, you can see the maturity. Well, I right, saw Kawhi mind. as a rookie. I watched him closer than most others did, and yeah. I'm amazed to see people saying, oh, I don't, don't think he's, his uh, ceiling's all that high. And I'm like, look, I, I guess you're assuming he develops the same way as Kawhi, but I just see so many of the same traits in him as a player that I saw in Kawhi Leonard. The question is, I guess, is, is Toronto is good an environment to bring that out yeah. of San Antonio? Yeah. That's what we're going to find out, and does he have the, the same qualities that Kawhi had? Look, in the interest of time, Daz, we might move on from Toronto there. I think we've sort of covered some of the other... Uh, points yeah. that you had anyway. Let's move on to, um, well, we, we've not spoken much about this team this season, Daz, so we'll, 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 we might spend a bit more time. That's the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, <laughs> and in terms of uh, where where they sit, I, got a quick I mean, Google I was going to... <laughs> Milwaukee, is that with a W? Two yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was actually going to... Get, say, you know, before I read the spreadsheet that we have, look, we might leave Milwaukee, because I I think the biggest question for them is, what happens with the coaching? I think outside of what what happens with the coaching decision, I'm not sure what else we can sort of say about this term, but I'll let you, I'll start with a throw to you, and then let you go through the questions. Look, Um, that's the the only question I'm going to answer. Look, the three questions were, how'd they go in the regular season? A little bit underperformed, right? We knew about that. They fired kids, so they and not radically, won 44 games. I think they're preseason 47. So they, they underperformed by a little bit. What do we learn about them in the playoffs is that the you know amazing talent can't overcome a fantastically coached and disciplined team. You know, so they, they just, despite historically great shooting for Middleton and a great series, to be honest, they couldn't overcome it. Um, what players stopped for me? Middleton. So doubt Giannis, you know, lifted his game to first all-NBA, first-team all-NBA levels, that's for sure. But Middleton, as has legitimized himself as I think a, a legitimate second best player on a really good team, having that phenomenal series against Boston. But yeah, the most interesting question, right, was what's the biggest offseason question? You're right, is who's the coach? But that for me is the tactical question. The the strategic question around who's the coach is then what is the identity? And I think that the how the front office and ownership and Rod Thorne is a consultant, how they think about answering the approach to identifying identity, what's the right type of basketball philosophy that you're going to need to get the most out of Giannis, you know, in the next um, next few years, and then what type of coach most, best matches that philosophy and or which coach presents the most compelling philosophy from a basketball perspective. That, for me, is the question. Is what is the identity? That's something they never had. Um, actually, they had a very clear identity, it just didn't win basketball games. It was they had really tall players, really long guys. You know, get your stretchy five like Thon, get freaks everywhere, 
and every position. This goes back to the, you know, even getting the MCWs of the world. Get that sort of long rangey switchable team. Um, use your defense to generate offense. Swarmingly aggressive style on D, and use that to, to play really up pace and aggressive style and pound the post. That was very very clear. It just didn't win basketball games. So then, as through the process of the last sort of eighteen months, they've just lost that. And they didn't, the players didn't believe in it, and Kid was too stubborn to change it in the off season. And you can see that's what was driving this team crazy and kind of grinding it inside out. So that's it. Who's the coach? What's their vision? And what sort of identity will they be able to imprint to change the way the the, the Bucks approach it? Um, yeah, approach I think we've spoken about that a few times. I mean, I, I actually like. I, I was a bit of a believer when when Kid first started implementing that system. I, I could see what, he, what his thinking was, and I actually thought it was going to work, um, but uh, clearly it didn't. And and there was just what's been pointed out. And if you read, there was a really good article Ben Fork wrote on this on cleaning the glass, where there just there there was zero margin for error in the yeah. in the defensive schemes that Kid would put out there. And as soon as they made an error, it was an open three, and and that's what happened. So I think they've got they've got to look at the roster, try and make the best out of what the roster is there. I don't know what the story is with Thon Maker. He seems to play well in the playoffs and, and, and no other time. So there's still something there, I think, um, for Thon Maker. And, there's still, and, and I still think, you know, overall the roster is probably not as bad a shape as what some of the, the more um, pessimistic Bucks fans might think at the moment. But if, if you get the right coach in there, the right system... Uh, to build around Giannis, I think the future can be much brighter. There's def- look, there's definitely upside in the existing roster. You, can get, you definitely get more from Snell. You, you, if they keep Jabari, there's upside there. If you can, another year of strength and conditioning from Thon, there's definitely upside in that roster, no question about it. So um, I'm, I'm, not as de- I'm not as down on the roster. It's that they just don't have many tools, right? So that's why those aren't the big questions. The big questions are the what's the identity and what's the philosophy of this team? really, before we get into that sort of mechanics of it. Okay. Well, let's, we'll move on there to a team that did radically outperform their expectations, Daz, and that's the Indiana Pacers. Uh, they were one of the funnest, the, 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 the most fun I had this season watching basketball was watching the Pacers. They won so many close games. It was inexplicable, some of the games that they won, how they did it. I loved what Vic Oladipo did. I, I love to see a guy that you sort of, just comes out of the blue like that that you just don't expect. And their seven-game series against LeBron was one of the best series I've ever seen LeBron go through um, in all the years that he's gone through the uh, the Eastern Conference. It may be the closest he's been pushed, I think. Well, I, I don't, actually, I don't have any doubt. That's the closest he's been pushed to elimination. Even the Celtics series that I referenced earlier, LeBron, they won them last two games reasonably comfortably. They were pushed to the limit in that first round series by Indiana. I thought their, their season was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, they got Cleveland got punched in the face by Indiana in Game One, right? Absolutely punched in the face. Almost the my best equivalent is when the New York Giants punched the undefeated Patriots in the face. Just holy shit, this team is not going to back down. So radically outperformed. I went back and he did some searching. My favorite quote about. Um, Indiana looking at their preseason prognostication was, quote, unfortunately, Indiana stuck between merely bad and boring rather than an utter travesty. (laughs) (laughs) That was my favorite way to describe them. Um, Most had them in the 9 to 11 range, so the fact they finished as a 5 seed and all the things you said about McMillan and and, um, Sabonis and Vic all came true. So great, great, great regular season and uh, nothing to be ashamed of seven-game series against 
against LeBron. Well, they were unlucky uh, what, too that Cleveland coasted through the regular season. Like, there's no yeah. way as a five seed you should be facing LeBron in the first round. No way. I know. <laughs> I know. That's true. But um, yeah, look, like like you said, they, that was a that was a very entertaining and high quality high quality of first round series, as you'll see. That's what I guess what you expect from a four or five sort of matchup to to you know, sort of push back on that point about. Facing LeBron, huh? you know, no one really argued that Cleveland was a four seed, right? Given how some of their defensive lapses were and all the turnovers. So, look, what did we learn about them in the playoffs? Um, look, that they had a future star in Oladipo. He consistently, right? Would he was consistently, but almost carried too much burden in the playoffs, didn't he? Where he could bring them back and he could carry them for long stretches. Heck, even carry them for halves of games, right? Um, and he did, and he. It proved to me, I don't know if you had the same sort of feeling, like stage wasn't too big for him. He couldn't get there in the end, um, but um, I don't think the stage was too big. I think he's going to learn a shitload from it and come back even more motivated. And his confidence is going to be, again, all NBA levels. So that's got to be super encouraging, as if the regular season wasn't encouraging enough, is to see how he you know, was really consistent and uh, in the playoffs. So I think that, for me, was the big one. Anything else from your perspective? Did you learn anything else about Indiana? just from that seven-game series, or is that kind of the... Did you see the same thing from Vic? That was the same thing. I mean, that, that was what impressed me. I mean, to go head toe-to-toe with LeBron James the way he did, with LeBron at the stage of his career that he's at, where you're talking about arguably the best player of all time playing his best basketball, right, or very close to it, okay? Yeah. For him to go toe-to-toe with him and take him seven games and push him to the brink We've arguably, well, I don't even think it's arguable. I think Indiana had a lesser supporting cast than what LeBron did when you consider he's got Kevin Love, he's got Kyle Korver, you know, George Hill, albeit only in a a cameo really towards the end. No argument for Um, that, for sure. So so to do that um, and and push him as far, like as I said, I I think he's a top 10 player in the NBA now. And and, and it's interesting, Daz, if, if OKC rang Indiana and offered Russell Westbrook for Oladipo straight straight up, how quickly do you think Pritchard would hang up? I mean, obviously, yeah. given the contract situation as well, I'm not suggesting you know head to head they you know Oladipo is that much better. Although I think I would prefer his game than Russ's in, on on a certain level. Um, although you wonder how many games Russ would win in the East, but I think from a contract point of view, Oladipo now is one of the most valuable players in the league without a doubt. Oh, for sure, was he? T- Twenty million a year, yeah. He had four year eighty, wasn't it? So he's That's only wrong. twenty million a year. That's brilliant. So I had the whole season about Oladipo. He he didn't give any reason to doubt in the um, in the playoffs. And then for me, I guess the big question heading the off season would be about um, I guess two sides of the same coin. How do you make the offense more dynamic? And that the probably the easier answer than X's and O's is he, they're going to need a they need a secondary scorer. They need someone who can. You know who can put the you know put the ball in the basket. Quite simply, they need a running mate for Vic. And I'm, I sort of lost a bit of faith about Miles Turner this year, and he almost said a little bit of the Andrew Wiggins you know, shrinking Violet this year. His usage is down, confidence sort of ebbed and flowed, and didn't become that dynamic kind of player, inside-out guy that we saw more flashes of, you know, last season. So for me, it's how do you make that offense more dynamic um, when it, you know when Vic is on it when he's not shooting well. What, how do you get, you know, generate offense more consistently? I think it's going to be more on the the personnel side than any sort of X's and O's stuff. That's a big question. Can they get in their score? 
Yeah, well, how much more improvement are they going to get out of Sabonis? I thought Sabonis played some really yep. nice stretches, did some dumb plays in the first round of the playoffs, but that's to be expected. He was asked to do a lot more this year. Molston is only 22, so let's, let's not necessarily say this is who he's going to be as an yep. NBA player. I think there's still room to grow there. And I've said it so many times, but just such a shame that they missed out on the draft with TJ Ford. Maybe TJ Ford next year shows us something, but he certainly didn't show much <laughs> at all. TJ... TJ Leaf, Leaf, sorry. Well, there was a <laughs> well, TJ old, Ford, wasn't there? Yeah, well, the old the Bucks, you know, <laughs> University of Texas. That's right. So, he yeah, smashed his Leaf. tailbone. Yeah. yeah. yeah so team. hopefully uh, they may see something there. But um, outside of Vic Oladipo, because they, didn't, they couldn't win a game when Oladipo was out as well. I think he missed six games and they went 0-6 uh across the season so that's oh, got to be a right. little bit of a yeah. concern for them uh going forward so let's let's move on as we go on to new orleans pelicans they were also outed in the second round undoubtedly though i would say a success uh of a season for them given you know if, if you had a said at the start of the year look boogie does his achilles uh, you know, probably what well, was it halfway through the season, or a little bit over halfway through the season, you would have thought, oh, this is just going to be an absolute disaster. But they got really, really strong contributions out of a number of guys. And the most criticised contract in the off season, outside of maybe Tim Hardaway Jr., was um, was uh, Drew Holiday, and he lived up to that contract every cent of it. Does he's freaking spectacular, right? He was absolute, absolute beast, right in in the playoffs. So yeah, the preseason was uh, yeah. Look, uh, my favorite quote was right: the, the giant red flag on New Orleans last season, 2016-17, ended with a formal press conference announcing that Dell Denson coach Al- Alvin Gentry quote wouldn't be fired. Right? Sweet, nothing to see here. That was kind of the sentiment heading into the years. Yet they overpaid Drew Holiday, had no choice. Can Boogie and AD coexist? The West is loaded. Added multiple super teams in Minnesota, OKC. So radically outperformed their for me anyway the, the preseason prognostications and and endured right a pretty rugged you know um schedule down the stretch uh, to even get in the playoffs and then of course the what we learned about the playoffs was drew holiday could be could be he might be the next bargain right at 25 million or 28 million a year whatever he got the way he played uh, on both sides of the ball against absolutely dominated i think i'm comfortable using that word dominated dame and CJ made them look like the second and third best players mm. um, in the backcourts in that series. So that might that's a very very interesting question for them. Is that you know did we learn enough in that off in that playoff run? Um, and a credible they were credible against Golden State, right? And they won a game. They probably should have won a second one. They were a couple shots going down from stealing game two. So they were they were credible, right? Um, they they belonged on that floor in the second round against Golden State, which. Which you didn't know. Like they could have lost. I didn't know either. Could they have lost each of those games by forty? I thought they might have, but they were credible. Right? They were absolutely credible. So um, that for me was a great learning for them. Is that you know the, the pairing between Holiday and AD might be very very real. And then um, for me the interesting question is what one player stood out in this season. I went a little bit off the um, off the reservation here a bit and said, of course, AD is so talented and Drew rose up in the playoffs, but. <laughs> But for me, it was Miritich, right? When Boogie went down and they made a little bit, looked a bit desperate, you know, kind of an acquisition and Miritich with the, you know, the face bashing incident in, um, uh, no, sorry, no, that wasn't him. That was Portis and... It was, it was Portis him, right? and him, yeah. Portis, Portis clocked him, didn't he, right? Yep. So he had a, 
weird season with Chicago. Um, thought God, you know, he, was he actually overpaid? But I thought he fit brilliantly in that team. He steadied their offense. He gave them space. He gave AD kind of much more space to kind of go in and out. And Mirch is a bit of a badass, right? He's a he doesn't seem to sort of shy away from the spotlight. He gets the crowd revved up. Um, and I just really liked his fit from a temperament perspective, both on the court and the temperament. So that, for me, is the player that I remember kind of feels like. I'll disproportionately give him credit, but it feels like he helped turn what felt like a disaster of a season. You know, the sky is falling when Boogie blew his Achilles. He came in and gave them a breath of fresh air. So for me, I think the season, not, quote, saved by Miritich, but I think he was a perfect acquisition um, for them to kind of get them on track to have the bit of the run that they had. Well, I think then, with Miritich, it allows them, and this will lead into your next point that you, I think you're about to make, it allows yeah. them, if they're going to bring Boogie Cousins back, to ease Boogie back into the lineup. It's not going to be, as soon as Boogie's ready yeah. to hit the court, we need him to produce. You can bring him in off the bench. He can play. He can be on the minutes restriction. It's not going to be into the world for this team. They're still going to be able to win games and be very competitive because of Miritich is there. Like, he, he sort of put, brought balance to that lineup. And I think... Boogie makes more sense now with Miritich there than what he might have before that. I mean, am I crazy to think that? I don't know if he makes... It's a good question. Does he make more sense now? I suppose it will depend on, obviously, the medicals of him and Boogie's temperament because it would make less sense because Boogie's not the man, right? I go, does Boogie have the temperament to play 26, 28 minutes a night? I don't know. We'll find out. That's what Miritich, right? Miritich is not a guy you, you play for, you know, 18, 20 minutes. He's a guy who he should be playing 30 minutes. He should be in the, you know, the front court rotation. So that for me is probably the bigger question is that does Boogie have the temperament to ease himself back in, use next season, say, let's say he plays the last 30 or 40 games of the year, you know, uh, to say play the Greg Monroe role, come off the bench, or, you know, occasionally, you know, stack a giant lineup next to AD again and let AD play some four. So um, it allows the front office, I think, some flexibility, but I don't know if it allows the on-court product. You know, it makes it easier. I think it actually makes it a little bit harder because you now have your force with choice. If you had no Miritich, it's a kind of a no-brainer. You have to bring him back and do what you can to fill out that backcourt. So I actually think it makes the decision harder, but the basketball better, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I think the big question for them, not necessarily... I think they'll want to bring Boogie back, but I don't think they'll want to bring him back on a long-term contract. I think it'll be something that where there'll be performance bonuses one. in there. Yeah. yeah, And then, obviously, it's going to be, does another team trump that with a longer offer? And, and does Boogie see... Uh, you know, want to go for the security of a longer offer, even if it's with a lesser team. That's going to be the question. My my sort of sense is I think he'll be back next year. I hope he comes back. Um, and, and it's a lot brighter future in New Orleans uh, at the moment than what we probably thought it would have been uh, heading into the season. And then well done to Demps and well done to Alvin Gentry. I thought he, he coached yeah. a great set. And I mean, with the, with the Warriors series... The final point I'd make on that is some of the games you look at the final scores, I think the Warriors won by sort of 10, 12 points, and you think, oh, that's a, that's a reasonably comfortable victory. But the pace those games were played at, 
A 10 and 12 point lead is like a 5 point lead in a normal game. Like they were just up and down the court. That's the fastest basketball I I can ever remember seeing. And I think the stats bore that out. The the pace of that series was just absolutely ridiculous. And uh, it it was entertaining to watch. And then New Orleans have got a a system there, I think, that they can can go forward with. you know, whether they're going to be good enough anytime soon to, to beat Golden State is obviously an open question, but that, that's that's going to be tough anyway. But at least it gives some hope there for Anthony Davis to say this team's not going to be an also-ran uh, in, no. in, the, in the coming years, where that's how they were, now, we're looking. Again, we'll probably explore deeper in the off-season, but I look at things like, you know, you got the big question, right, was the dumpster fire that was their bench in their backcourt. But to get performances I got from right, 82 games from Etuan Moore, right, 82 games from Darius Miller, right, and combined Darius Miller and Etuan Moore combined for 55 minutes, 55 minutes a game, and each of them shot you know above 41% from three on a combined you know eight attempts per game. And I go, how sustainable is a Darius Miller and Etuan Moore playing 55 minutes a game next year? Right, so you kind of look at, and plus the Rondo being unrestricted, right? That's suddenly quite a crowded, crowded backcourt. And or is are we third playing with, um, you know, is that an? Un, do they believe that's a sustainable combination? Can you can you trot those guys out again for major minutes and expect them to do the same thing at the, you know, um, at the same level? That for me is probably the where I think there might be a little bit of, um, uh, I guess, fluff for want of a better term, built on their record, their performances, you go, gosh, is the career seasons from these two guys. So that's the only, that's for me is a sort of nitpicking a fantastic season, but you know, can they get some, what can they get from their two, three sort of positions? Yeah. Well, let's move on to the next team. I'm going to give myself a pat on the back here, Daz. I, Go for my, it. My prognosticating hasn't been the greatest at times this year, but two two things I got 100% right. One, I said Phoenix were going to be the worst team in the NBA, and they certainly lived up to that expectation. The second is I said the Utah Jazz were going to get the five seed in the Western Conference, and that was a major reach, um, and they certainly did that, Daz, <clears throat> although I did say it was going to be on the back of a very good offensive season from Rudy Gobert, so uh, mm-hmm. not really on the breakout. Uh, rookie season from Donovan Mitchell but I'll take it anywhere I can get it at the moment so uh, the Utah Jazz is the next term we want to talk about Daz. I think the interesting thing I'll see about this today I think you make once an you argument once you handle this one yeah you know, you know well, these guys once you handle this one I can yeah. think you can make an argument with Utah that they're the fourth best team in the NBA overall like, I think they're the third best team in the Western Conference and I don't I think they're better than anyone in the East at the moment outside of uh, Cleveland albeit <laughs> with Boston's injuries and things like that so I think they're they're right up there does and there's untapped upside in some of those players uh, you know Donovan Mitchell we've spoken about but Dante Exum showed some really nice signs towards the end of the season you know Rubio wasn't there for the, the Houston series who knows what sort of a change he could have made I, I think that series easily could have gone six games it goes back to Utah who knows uh, Gobert did, did take a next step on defence and offence. But obviously the big questions for them is now, um, Derek Favors is a free agent this off-season. What do they do with him? Dante Exum is actually a restricted free agent, so they've got some decisions to make there. 
the question for them, I guess, is, is this roster and is the development of this roster going to take them up to that next stage? Do they believe, like I believe, that they're in the sort of top four or five teams in the NBA as they stand at the moment? And with natural development, they're going to get even better? Or do they need extra pieces and maybe even a a subtle change of emphasis on the offensive end of the court uh, to reach their potential? And they're the off-season questions I think they're going to have to ask. Yeah, I sort of phrase, I think they're, I'm not going to call them the fourth best team, but I, what I say it is, what do we learn about them in the playoffs? Is I, I think they're one player away from freaking out the top two seeds. I think they're one player away. Now, I don't know what that what that one player is. But well, that's the question, no Des. Is that player already on their yeah. roster? Like, if Dante Exum takes the next step, or if Mitchell gets even better, or if I, you know, uh, O'Neal gets yeah. even better, for example. I think Exxon's going to have, he's going to make them potentially, right, that defensive, you know, the number one defensive team in the league for me. But he's still not the answer on, on offensive, very much like we talk about with Indiana and Victor Oladipo. There's just too few options on offense for Utah. It's not about talent or the access knows just they just don't have the options, and particularly the, the glaring lack of shooting, right? Ingles was sensational, right? Shooting, Jesus, 44% for the year almost looked like a misprint, 44%, <laughs> holy Christ. But, man, can you even name the next best three-point shooter? And that's freaking Ricky Rubio, right? Um, you know, Hood, Hood was up to 38-39 in the few games he played for them, but they need some scoring, Daz. That's where I go. It, it, is that I'm just throwing out, I'm not even thinking through fit, but, you know, do you go after a, you know, like an Isaiah Thomas revival? Do you pay him a little bit, put him on the bench, and try and get 15 points a game out of a guy like him? in the defense you could hide do they throw some money at a Tyreek Evans to be right an offensive force and a creator so that Mitchell can do a little bit of resting every now and again and have such ridiculous usage will they get involved in a restricted space you know there's lots of you know you know fake trade stuff so players like Jabari and that sort of stuff so I go they're one I think they're one really good offensive player away from having enough versatility and perhaps maybe even a secondary shooters, maybe one and a half players, from really giving a scare to the top two seeds. But you're right. I think Exum, when he showed his medal in that ridiculous defensive performance against Houston, that there's the there's your defensive upside, but he's never really been touted right on the offensive side of the ball. Bit of a slasher, bit of a guy who can finish, but you know he's got not much um, not much to write home about outside the outside the paint. So I think Jabari is the interesting is guy they, for them from a from a. RFA point of view because you swap out favors for Jabari and that's a that's a different looking offense now. Uh, Jeez, obviously, be, yeah. not, not as good on defense, but you don't necessarily need him to be as good as favors on defense. The favors not a lockdown defender, but he's he's better than Jabari. I, 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 um, I'd say that certainly at this point in his career, but offensively, yeah. the upside of Jabari on the offensive end, and I I don't think you know. I'd be interested to know what Milwaukee's squeal point is in terms of what they'd match for Jabari. I don't know if it's going to be that high. I think I think that could be a real, um, a really nice fit and, and and a genuine potential for Utah to make that signing in the off season. Yeah, so guys like that, guys like that. So yeah, look, that was one of the more entertaining teams as well as defensive as they were. So who would have thought beginning of the year who would have said teams like Indiana and Utah were, you know, sort of almost you know really compelling. You know, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I always forget the name. Game Pass. Game Pass. I always forget what it's called. They're a great Game Pass theater. Great, um, you know, great playoff performance. And yeah, 
Get a score. Get a, find me a score, man. Find me, find me a score. You almost wish God maybe this would have had Tyreek this year. This this Tyreek on this team would have been awesome. It'd have been awesome when Rubio was out and could rest Mitchell a little bit and get some offense. That's why. That's yeah, the, that's know, a good point. The, the fake the fake theory that never happened to the three million bucks for Tyreek would have been genius for them. But uh, well, I guess Alex yeah, Burks. If he, if Alex Burks could play in the way he did in the playoffs, yeah. he might be the Tyreek. So let, that's that's a guy to watch as well. So yeah. let's move on to the Fair team enough. that they they knocked out in the playoffs was OKC, um, and I guess the the big question is, as it always with OKC, it's all about Russ. So can you win with Russell Westbrook as your best player? That's sort of to me the question that they need to be asking. Um, heading into the off-season. And obviously, there's some free agency questions around Paul George as well that need to be resolved. That's right. So the regular season is what we saw. It was just it never all came together. They had moments, uh, but just it never it never gelled. Mello was sub-optimized. Um, it just, just just didn't happen for them. Um, what we learn in the, in, the, in the postseason is that when you're on the brink of elimination and Russell Westbrook shoots 43 times, that's what you, that's what you learn. You are... This Russ, uh, this franchise is Russ, and the giganto contract he's on is—he's—they're not just Russ on the court; they're Russ on the balance sheet as well. So that's why it's not really a question for me. Is that—it's not a question of can you build it with Russ? Is they don't—that's—that's that's already given. Is they're—they're going to do everything, or they can to right to try to do that. So the biggest question for me is the—is the first one, which is probably the more tactical one. Those. Did they have any shot in hell of retaining Paul George, right? I think most convention says that the answer is no. So once the, once that question is answered, much like the way you describe San Antonio, is you can't really have any conversation about them until you can figure out the, the Kawhi question. Similar for me with, with OKC, is if, you, if George is in or George is out, you've got to know definitively, and then we can start looking at, you know, then what paths they have to try and, you know, to try and make this team different and reshape it. And again, we've we've read this list over too many times, but the list of players who thrive when they leave Rust is a growing, growing long list. And I'm, I think the whole universe where, where our pessimism is growing around the ability for Rust to take a team, you know, beyond say the, even the second round of the playoffs, is it was just not a serious threat in a seven-game series because he's inevitably going to go, you know, going to go 11 for 43. So hmm. probably for me a, de- a depressing where we sort of thought, right, I, I, I heralded and praised and we sort of yay, yay for OKC, you know, small market who was able to keep their guy and able to attract, had enough assets to, to acquire Paul George. And we were saying, man, what an awesome thing for this team to not have to, to endure the Kevin Durant leaving and Paul George coming. So quite, I imagine, quite an emotional cliff they've been sliding off this season you know, pretty much from day dot when it was just a clunky beginning and it never, ever just got on track. So I don't think this is a team that's just a little tweak here and there away from, from challenging. I think this is a team that's, you know, I, I think you're probably with me, aren't you, where you just go, I just don't see a Russell Westbrook team you know, being a 55-58 win team Yeah, anymore. I, I still think I would have loved to have seen this team without the mellow trade and just roll with, with Russ and, P, and Paul George as your two best Keep Cantor on the books. Cantor's a great matchup in some against some teams, terrible matchup against others. But okay, you leave him on the bench against the Warriors, etc. But 
I think that that's the team I, I would have liked to have seen play out this season and then see what happens. But once Melee came in the mix, it was like putting oil in water, Daz. It just didn't didn't work. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That, that, and, and of course, Melo's still on the books for next year and good luck trading that contract. So um, they, they've got some... You know, it, it's going to be a... Yeah. It was a depressing end to the season. I think it's going to be even more depressing off-season uh, for OKC. But uh, to your point, we'll wait and see what Paul George does. There is a chance, I guess, he'll be back. If he comes back, um, everything changes. But at this stage, I, I, I think that's a, a long shot to happen. Moving on to another team. Another team that we've talked quite a bit about, Daz, was Minnesota. Didn't probably talk about them as much in the plus. Look, I haven't got a lot to say about this team. I, I think it's going to be the exact same team pretty much that will come back next year. They would have, in fairness to them, I think, without the Butler injury, they're probably a three or four seed. Maybe they sneak into the second round of the playoffs and maybe our, our outlook is a little bit different on them if they get into that second round of the playoffs. But as it turned out, they fell into the eight seed. Mismatch against Houston. They did take a game off them, but uh, went out pretty quite, pretty quietly with a five game in the five-game series. Um, and it's it seems very clear they're going to come back with the exact same lineup next year. I think you're going to see the exact same results. If they stay healthy, they might be a, a, a top four seed. The, their ceiling is probably the second round of the playoffs. Yeah, pretty. I think their season <laughs> probably went about what we thought, didn't we? You know, some ups and downs, but what we learned in the playoffs about them, right, is that again, it's probably hard to gauge because they played Golden State. But you know, a team who plays no defense has no hope. And so I go, that's for me, just leading very quickly to their offseason questions. They're their gigantic questions is how do they build depth? How do they get a, a deeper roster? How do they add more shooting? How do they, you know, how do they play more defense? But this is Thibodeau. This is a Thibodeau team, and I don't know about you, but I probably expected a lot more progression, a lot more evidence that he could get, you know, supremely gifted players like Cat and Wiggins in particular to be more contributing, you know, to a healthier defense, and they just hasn't. So when your questions are depth, shooting and defense, you've got a gigantic list of challenges for the offseason. So for me, it's all about roster construction, how much they can do in the offseason. You know, players, pardon me, sort of 4 through 15 minus the big three. And I think they are who they are with Wiggins. I, I think for me, I think we're going to hear, I won't be shocked if we hear grumblings. If they're shopping him, I would not be shocked if they're shopping him. Why do I think that? I, I think we're about six months, maybe... So not six months. We're probably about 30 more games of a regular season away from Tom Thibodeau being close to the Stan Van Gundy level of desperation. And if this team starts off again, you know, say, you know, 500 or below 500 with the same roster and you're seeing the same symptoms that we saw this year, it's going to feel a little bit of a combination of, you know, a bit of the Jason kid going, oh, God, this is the symptoms we had last year and a whole other off-season of change and off-season to instill some stuff. We're seeing the same things. I think the pressure could intensify pretty quickly around Thibodeau. And then for me, secondarily to that, is that what might they do in the offseason? Might they have the chutzpah? I don't think they do. But might they have the chutzpah to say, you know what? Um, is there a team uh, desperate for talent like a Phoenix or a Brooklyn or whomever that might be who would want to take the Wiggins contract? And do they, do they believe in Wiggins? Do they believe he can do something better than you know, watching his usage plummet and, you know, his slash line, Daz, 43, 33, 64. 
That was his slash line this year, 43%, 33% from three, a 64% free throw shooter this year on 17 points a game. That from your number one draft pick, that from the guy who was touted to have quote-unquote as much athleticism as Jordan, that with the guy who's got the, the max contract coming, that could be an albatross. And so that for me is the, the intertwined questions is what do you do with Wiggins? Is he part of the, the asset? Is he the sort of the piece you could move? to help bring in some depth and some shooting. So for me, it's, I think you're right. Generally, it's either going to be the exact same team or there's going to be some mega thing like Wiggins gets moved. So that's, that's where I'm sort of at. Well, this is what I think they need to do. They need to pull Cat aside, pull Jimmy aside at the start of the season and say, first 20 games this season, we're going to feature Andrew Wiggins on offense. His usage is going to spike. Every time there's a missed free throw, every time there's a missed bucket, you leave the rebound, let him get it. We're going to pump his numbers up, and then 20 games into the season, we're going to make some calls and trade his ass. <laughs> <laughs> you Michael Carter-Williams. <laughs> <laughs> because I, it's not going to happen for Wiggins. It's not going to happen, Daz. I was on Wiggins Mountain for a long time, and it's it's a cold, lonely place. I can tell you, it's, I just don't see it happening there. And the th- the three-throw percentage was really what, what shocked me this year, the fact that that fell off. So this is not a guy that looks like, to me, works on his game, doesn't have any sort of an alpha personality that he wants to you know, have, have big moments. I just think he's... I, I think he's like that student at school that just gets by on his natural abilities for so long. And then eventually they get to university and they, and they take too hard a course or something and it's just they, they, they can't do it anymore. And because you've got to put yeah. in that extra effort, they fall over. That's how he looks to me. He just got by on his natural ability, the natural athleticism for so long and now it's getting a bit too hard and he's just not too interested once it gets too hard. So I agree with you. That's going to be an albatross. Moving it is going to be an absolute nightmare for them. So I wish them the best of luck um, with yeah. that. Last two teams we'll talk about, and these are two terms that I touched on. Look, we've, we've spoken a bit about these terms, Dad, so there's not much point uh, dealing with them too much. That's Washington and Portland. I think they've both pretty much got the same questions, albeit in a different manner. Like... With Washington, I think, can you build around John Wall? Uh, I think they saw uh, some signs about how the team looked without John Wall this year, and Bradley Beal had some playmaking abilities. I think they sort of looked at that and thought that they might have a bit of buyer's remorse about offering John Wall that contract, um, to be honest. I don't necessarily think his game's going to get better with age either. Uh, so that might be a guy that they look to move in the off-season. I, th- I think someone's going to be moved from that team. I, I can't see BLM Wall coming back and them just running it out again. I just don't see how that's going to work. With Portland, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a similar dynamic. We spoke about it last week with CJ and Dame. You know, do you bring them both back again? I'm a little bit higher on Portland. I think the three seed, they just they, they lost momentum at the wrong time in the playoffs, ran into a red-hot New Orleans. Um, and I think the big question with Portland is, how much more improvement does Dame have? You know, Dame had a month mm. this season, Daz, where I thought he was the MVP of the league if he plays that way across the whole season. You know, he, he was playing Steph Curry-level basketball. Can he do that for 82 games or even, you know, 70 games? That's the question that they need to ask. And, and, you know, he's still relatively young. Is there more upside that we haven't seen with Dame Lillard? I don't think it's there for John hmm. Wall. I think that's that's an interesting question because we saw it for a month. Can we see it for three, four months next year? And if we do see it for three or four months, what's what's the ceiling of that too? Interesting. Interesting. I actually never thought about it that way. Does Dame have even more to go? 
And I, for me, that almost this is a bit of the cop out answer. My view on that is that it almost has to be you'd only find that out if he's surrounded by different types of wing or center talent, right? So if he's got a different type of offensive force um, on the team, I think would would you find out more? So there's, he's just so comfortable, right, playing with CJ. So I don't think there's any more we're going to ever see from him unless you break up that the dynamic. I'm not saying trade CJ, but they had a if you had a different sort of scoring force on offense, would you find out if you could get uh, to a different look, level? Look, I, I think the thing with Lillard is knowing his sort of personality, you know what he'd be doing at the moment? He'd be in that film room looking at what New Orleans did and he'll spend the offseason working on ways he can beat that next year. Because yeah, I, I think if teams throw that at him again, he's going to have a plan and, and you'd think Terry Stotts is going to have a plan as well, by the way. Um, um, to say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to be ready for that. So he's going to be looking to improve and continue to develop his game. He does it every off-season. He's one of, there's a couple of guys that are known as real hard workers in the off-season. He's certainly one of them. Chris Paul's another. They just try and add something to their game, come back even better and better next each season. And I think we may see another or further improvement from Dame Lord next year. But to your point, even if he does improve more, is the talent around him going to be enough yeah. uh, for us yeah. to see that? I, I still think there's moves they can make as well. I still think Nurkic has some some value, um, and at least Zach Collins showed something for them from a draft point of view. He did. They can go, okay, well, if we have to move on from a Nurkic, um, you know, although Collins not really a centre necessarily, but at least you've got some other players within the rotation um, that can come in um, and, and fill in some minutes there. So, uh, not I'm much higher on Portland. I think Portland's future looks much better. Washington, that was just a sad place, Daz, um, to be in the end they were, of the season. They were off. They left him off the spreadsheet at the beginning to put him in the San Antonio <laughs> and and uh, in Miami camp. So maybe we just put him back there. It is. It is depressing. I don't think they're going to trade Beal or Wall, but I think Porter, Porter, and other. Well, how can Beal and Wall clearly can't coexist? I, I think that, well, that seems to me to be clear. Yeah, I, I think you have to move one of them. I, personally, I'll be looking at. I'll be shopping John Wall pretty, he, pretty aggressively. Um, yeah. and even just yeah. to get him off the books because that's going to be. You talk about albatross contracts, and I think it's the interesting thing is we've seen. Teams already offer those Supermax contracts. I think there's already buyer's remorse in a number of different teams. Um, and if there's not now, I think there will be in a couple of years' time. So it's going to be interesting to see, um, as players come up for some of those Supermax contracts, whether, you know, who's, I guess, put it this way, Daz, who's the first team that's going to blink when it comes time to our superstar comes up and it's Supermax time and we're not going to offer it? It could be San Antonio, Daz, but... One of these teams is going to blink at some point and say, we just not offer it. Because when you offer that contract, you're now locked into that guy for the next five years. And do you think James Harden's game is going to age well, Daz? Well, he, he of all people, because he's just not really an athlete, actually, I actually think he could age well. I know I know what you're saying. That contract won't age well. But um, because of Blake, his, his, his life is based on, you know, explosive athleticism that doesn't age very well but Harden with this pitter-patter tippy-toe sort of stuff actually could age well so he I, I know what you're saying though I, I just don't think that was for me that's probably not the greatest example of the guy to blink on 
But um, oh, I wouldn't. I'm not saying I would have yeah. blinked yeah. on that either. Yeah. But I'm just saying, yeah. you know, at, at the back end of that contract, that's not that's not going to be a nice contract. And I think teams are looking ahead to that and saying, as good as this guy is now, we've got to start projecting where is he going to be in five years' time. Now, with, yeah. with Kawhi Leonard, I think with assuming well, health, he's still going to be an elite player in five years' be, time. But some of these guys Thompson. won't be. Clay Thompson might be one I started thinking about where I go. He's a, you know, that's one you might start to think: is he worth twenty-eight, thirty million dollars a year to be your third best player? Right. That for me is the kind of guy who's probably most likely to hit that, hit that sort of, um, you know. Well, I think for Golden State it's different because they look at it and say, if we re-sign Clay Thompson, we know where we're going to be. Well, we, we're, gonna we're going win, to continue yeah. to win championships. If they let him go, they can't bring anyone else in in free agency because they're up against the but, hard cap. But, that, but so that's it's a what different happens. question for them. Yeah, that's what happens though when you get to, I guess that's the that's what tends to happen with these supermaxes. They go, you can't possibly replace this guy generally. So that's where you're almost almost kind of forced into it when and the supermax, I guess not the hard cap, I meant the supermax contracts because yeah, yeah. you kind of have no choice. So you're right. I think we will eventually see that. With the John Walls, with the Andrew Wiggins, with the, you know, with the Blake Griffins, there's enough evidence to say, my goodness, you know, will we, do we have the chutzpah, though? That takes a lot of guts to, to basically do that. So, well, then you've got the, yeah. the flip side, that is the Gordon Hayward situation where they don't offer him the, the max of, of what they could have offered him. He expires a year earlier, and then he walks oh, in free agency like because the guy, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to go there. I knew it was in the back of my mind, but I thought, I'm not going to yeah, go there. Yeah, it is. No. So, yeah. look, last point, there's a couple of coaching highs um, have been confirmed as well. Uh, um, James Borrego has gone to the Charlotte Hornets, um, the San Antonio Spurs uh, assistant. So that's an interesting... Interesting questions, I guess. There, he's a younger guy, isn't he? Is he, a he is a younger assistant? guy. He had, yeah, he had. Yeah. Um, he started in the video room at the Spurs. He was an assistant at Orlando. He took over his interim coach there when Jacques Vaughan was fired. Um, he ran some interesting things there. He went ten and twenty, but there was some interesting plays. This is a guy that's going to not be afraid to try stuff. My question, I guess, is: Are they going with a young coach there? Are they now taking a longer term view there? And the guys like Batum. Uh, well, Dwight Howard, you imagine he's going to be hard to move, but Kemba, etc. Is this going to be the start of a rebuild there, or or do they think this is the guy to get the best out of the roster yeah. that we have? I think that's the, that's the big question uh, for them. Yeah. And the Atlanta Hawks, I'm just uh, I'm trying to get up there because um, they did uh, hire uh, Lloyd Pierce, the 76ers assistant. Sixers um, assistant, yeah. yeah so um, I'm not. I don't know a lot about Lloyd Pierce. I read a little bit about it today. But the Hawks, obviously, they are. They're certainly taking the long term view. I'd argue they have the worst roster in the NBA at the moment. So um, they're probably just hoping for the lottery balls to fall their way on Wednesday, Daz, at this stage. Yeah, it's probably a sad, sad as maybe even sadder than Orlando. Yeah, they're probably the, they're probably fighting for one two, but uh, long building process is good to see a. I guess he'd be a Brett Brown protege of some sort. I know nothing. I've never heard of Lloyd Pierce, so I can't add anything about it. Um, but it looks like a younger guy getting his shot, right, his first head coaching um, sort of job. So, yeah, I'd like to see that, right, a first, first time Well, guy, he's been through the rebuilding guy, process um, at, at Philly, I guess. So so that would, would have yeah, been part right. of the thinking. Yeah. Um, you know, it's good to see that they have come through that process and, and obviously well, there's been some development there. 
And and they're playing Budenhoser seven million a year for the next two years. So you know what? They're probably going to go for a cheap. They could probably go for a cheap coach. I got seven million a year invested the next two years. So um, that's not a joke. That, that's it. So that's why he's got an interesting negotiations where his jobs is that you wonder if teams are going to get clever with, you know, um, with what they offer. So uh, uh, anyway. Yeah, so still so, some, obviously Detroit's and, still um, looking for a coach, uh, Milwaukee, Toronto, uh, still haven't filled out their, their coaching jobs yet. So still still a couple of interesting hires to come. Orlando? Orlando's Orlando haven't, haven't hired a coach yet either, does. Who's Orlando's coach? That's been that's been really quiet from Orlando. Right? Well, I think Orlando, right? Yeah, but Orlando might be one of those teams where they make they some of the guys they're interviewed have said, "Look, just hold. I'm waiting for Milwaukee's decision. I'm waiting to see what other positions come up, uh, and then I'll get back to you." Because there is, I'm, I'm reading something now that Dwayne Casey or might be left there as well. Some dubs. Oh right, right. Oh God be a disaster he i just think i think if i'm casey needs to go away i know why he'd want to get it back on the horse as fast as possible but i really think he'd benefit from his reputation everything just go away for a year go go do i agree a, with you i think lionel holland was in a similar position does lionel holland's got sacked yeah. uh, after memphis made the western conference finals and the spurs swept them uh, in, in in actually four closer games than what uh, what Cleveland just had, yeah. and then yeah. uh, he got fired. He went straight to Brooklyn and uh, did a terrible job there. He should have taken a little bit more time off, and then got the back in the coach. Because I like Lon Hollins as a coach, but uh, it didn't work for him there. And I, I agree with you. I think Dwayne Casey would do well to just maybe take a season off. There's, there's still going to be options there. Frank Vale was another guy that his name hasn't come up yet. Maybe he's in the same boat. Needs to wash the stink of um, the Orlando season off him before he gets back on the bike. Yeah, so. I think that's right. Yeah. All right, Des. So I'm hoping. Yeah. Anyway, but it sounds like I think the next couple of weeks, whilst we get ready for the finals, I think we'll probably have some high-profile coaches to announce. It sounds like. Yeah, that's right. So we've got the the lotteries this week too, Des. Uh, so that's Wednesday. Uh, Australian yeah. time, so that's we're going to have that to talk about next week. Uh, we'll have at least uh, what probably three games each in the books for these uh, conference finals to talk about next week, and maybe a couple of these coaching hires will have fallen into place as well. I know Milwaukee are conducting interviews uh, this week, um, and they might be closer to a decision you'd imagine uh, this time next week. So we'll leave it there for tonight, as though we've got plenty plenty discussed tonight. We we got through plenty, which was good, um, and we'll see uh, the conference finals uh, start tomorrow morning here's to hoping Becky Hammond gets another final makes the final cut I'm starting to really warm to this idea I saw I read Paul Paul Gasol's open letter it was I know I'm, I'm a bit of a bleeding heart here but it's it's I'm actually I'm actually thinking this could be really cool so Go Becky Hammond. Well, at least she's going through the process. I think that's the key for her. And uh, she's already moving up in the picking order at the Spurs anyway. So even if she doesn't that's get right. the job uh, she's another year of a, of a higher level assistant, uh, the Spurs, she'll be a, a move closer. And who knows, the, you know, the... Um, the the um, progression that the Spurs uh, might move from Masuna if he gets another job and Becky Hammond might end up taking over from Pop. There uh, you go. When he inevitably steps aside. So we'll see how that plays out, Des. All right, mate, good to talk to you again. And uh, we'll, we'll no doubt speak during the week, but we'll have our podcast again uh, this time next week. All right, Des, good one. Thanks, Thanks pal. Bye. Bye.